Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. The writer Mark Karlansky, by a series of coincidences, spent his life as a journalist and author in the shadow of Ernest Hemingway, starting with his presence in Idaho on the day Hemingway died. Mark would reside and work during his career in Paris, the Basque region of Spain, Cuba, and Ketchum, Idaho, all places where Hemingway lived and where his myth remains firmly implanted and celebrated. Mark struggled to free himself from the haunting presence of Hemingway, whose life, starting with the tales he told of being an ambulance driver in Italy in World War I, was a confusing blur of fact, exaggeration, hyperbole, and lies. And yet, Hemingway was undeniably one of the most gifted writers of the 20th century. More importantly, he believed that writers should go places and do things, living with a writer and journalist, Martha Gellhorn in the Hotel Florida during the siege of Madrid, during the Spanish Civil War, hunting big game in Africa, fishing for marlin off the coast of Key West and Cuba, or joining American combat units as they fought in France and Germany in World War II. Mark and I pursued this life as foreign correspondents for newspapers, something Hemingway also did throughout his career, although badly. Hemingway could never disentangle fact from fiction in his life and his writing, including his journalism. There is much in Hemingway's life and writing to admire and much to reject. Joining me to discuss his new book, The Importance of Not Being Earnest, My Life with the Uninvited Hemingway, is Mark Karlansky. Uh, so, Mark, in your book, that you have some, I thought, very uh, wise comments about writing. I want to ask you about that. You say that Writing is about establishing rhythm, and rhythm is often established by repetition. If a writer seems flat and without appeal, the problem is usually not that he or she does not use the right words, as is often believed, but that the writer is arrhythmic. And I thought that captured the essence of Hemingway's power as a writer. It's not the parody of the staccato sentences. It's that almost jazz-like rhythm, and I wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, establishing a rhythm and setting up the, setting up the line. Um, I've, I found it very rewarding that uh, uh, once in an interview later in his life, he listed Bach as one of his great influences. And I was thrilled to see that because uh, I'm, well, I'm a classical musician, not a very good one. Um, but I regard Bach as a tremendous influence on writing, a tremendous influence on everything. Um, and, you know, Jakarta and Fugue, that's, that's, that's what we do. We have a theme, we set it up against another theme. We have uh, rhythms. Sometimes you change the key, but you, then you get back to the theme. Um, musicologists say that Bach uh, did theme and variation both horizontally and vertically. It's a very complex thing. But if you if you really study what Bach was doing, you can learn a lot about writing. Well, you even say in the book, don't listen to music while you write. Oh, absolutely. It's a terrible mistake. If you Because you, you have to establish the rhythm of what you're working on. If you're listening to music, you know, um, you, know you don't want your piece to come out sounding like Motown. <laughs> right. Although, 
that was nice, but it's not what your piece is supposed to be. Uh, you write in the book that you are very influenced by the Beats, Allen Ginsberg. Uh, poetry, of course, so like great writing, is, I think, a form of music. Uh, and you say for this reason, uh, you should uh, write, uh, th when you write, that poetry should not be completely understandable, that it expresses a truth that we can sense but is slightly beyond us. Uh, I thought that was a wonderful kind of uh, insight. And I wondered if you could just talk about that. Yeah, um, you know, William Carlos Williams, one of the great modernist poets, was giving a reading somewhere, and uh, somebody complained they didn't understand the poem. And he said, I'm not asking you to understand it, I'm just asking you to listen. Um, and uh, this is actually very much in line with uh, Hemingway's thinking about prose, which has famously become known as the iceberg theory. Um, he didn't believe that everything should be explained. Um, I, I think this is a very, very important idea, a very counterintuitive idea if you've spent time as a journalist. Newspapers kind of like you to explain things. But, uh, um, you know, life is, if you're, if you're recreating the experiences of life, everything in life isn't explained. You don't understand everything you say. You uh, say in the book, don't go to school to learn how to write. Uh, that if writing is any good, it, it's too personal an endeavor to be taught by someone else. Uh, I also thought, especially with the proliferation of uh, all these uh, 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 masters of fine arts, this was pretty wise advice. Yeah, I, uh, on the rare occasions when I find myself giving a writing course, I always begin by talking about a conversation I once had. I used to know Isaac Bashiva Singer, and he taught a course at the University of Miami. And I said to him once, what is it you teach there? And he said, I teach what can't be taught. Then <laughs> uh, said, you can't, really, you can't really teach writing. So when I give a writing course, I mean, the, the worst thing you could do to somebody who's struggling to become a writer um, is to tell them how to write. They have to find it in themselves. Um, what, what I do in a writing class is I ask everybody to write something, read it, and everybody else criticizes it. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to teach critical thinking and how you evaluate criticism that you receive. Uh, also, uh, but also just how you regard things critically. And I think that's all you can do. I mean, you can't uh, you can't tell somebody how to write. But would it be fair to say that you can teach someone to write clearly, uh, but to write lyrically? would be a difference. Yeah, you don't want to teach. I mean, lyricism is something, you know, if you're not Irish, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't, what you shouldn't do, and what is done a lot in writing classes, is you cannot teach, you cannot teach people how to develop their prose style. Your prose style is your voice, and everybody has their own. Some voices are better than others. And yet, I, I think all writers, like many artists, begin by imitation. I, in, in your case, uh, I think it was Hemingway in mine, it was Faulkner. I was trying to write a lot of drivel that sounded like go down Moses. And it's a kind of 
trap. Uh, I mean, you need to break free from it. But uh, talk about those initial stages, because I think that is how you learn how to write and how you learn perhaps any kind of artistic expression is beginning through imitation. Yeah, I suppose so. And I suppose when I was really young, I mean, you know, I was what, something like third grade, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And when I was young, uh, well, I mean, Hemingway was a huge influence. Lawrence Ferlinghetti was a huge influence. But um, you eventually just have to find voice that's within you. And, you know, a good way to do this is um, don't try to write, you know, just tell somebody the story. Listen to how you're telling it. Uh, because for some reason, we almost always use our own voice when we, when we tell a story, uh, when we speak. But we have this, if we're, you know, novices and experienced people have this tendency to imitate great writers when they're when they're writing, if they just listen to how they speak. I mean, basically, most people do write the way they speak. Hemingway did, if you've ever heard recordings. You know, you read Hemingway and, you know, people are, it's sort of odd the way people are talking, uh, but he talked like that. <laughs> well, Hemingway was a very stilted public speaker. He didn't like public speaking, no. But he wasn't very good at it. No, he wasn't. And it, 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 it's funny because he he worked so hard at having a public persona. But, uh, you know, he just, he hated getting up and speaking. Uh, he claimed ill health and not uh, going to uh, the, his Nobel Prize speech. But I, I think he just didn't want to do it. Let's talk about Hemingway, uh, who's this kind of shadow character in your book. Uh, he began very early on to turn himself into a myth, into a celebrity. Uh, he came back, uh, what was he, 19 or something after. Uh, and as you point out in the book, by the way, he only spent a week, I believe, uh, uh, in, in the front lines in and, Italy. And not, not as a combat soldier. And not as a combat soldier, although he uh, rapidly inflated his role. Um, and you, you, you write that he, that, that he essentially made himself a fictional character and I it would dog dogged him throughout his life as he became more famous in the same way that I think it did a figure like Hunter Thompson. Uh, I want to speak about that idea of artist becoming myth because I think it's very dangerous. Well it is and it doesn't make you happy. It, uh, Hemingway towards the end of his life was complaining a lot how nobody knew who he really was. And well you know whose fault was that him? You know uh, but he did create this this mythical person that wasn't him. Uh, but he was also a very complicated person, uh, which becomes clear when you talk to people who knew him, which are, are not many around. There were still a few when I was working in the book. And they're all talking about a different person. They, you know, the, the, the Hemingway who hunted in Idaho was not the Hemingway who hung out in the mountains. Um, and, you know, who was the real Hemingway? You know, he was, I think he was an intellectual. Uh, uh, Dorothy Dudley, who was uh, his uh, secretary and later his daughter-in-law, said, when you really got to see the real Hemingway, is that you get him to sit down and talk about writing and painting. 
That's who he was, an intellectual who thought about these things. You know, the, the, the Hemingway who talked about fishing and hunting and boxing, uh, that, that wasn't who he was. Right. Well, it was this kind of hyper-masculine myth. And yet, if you read, I think some of his best stuff was written in his early 20s, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. Uh, These are incredibly cat in the rain. These are very sensitive stories uh, Mm -hmm. that I think show exactly what, uh, illustrate the point you're making. He wrote a story that the title of it escaped me. He wrote a story one of his earlier stories about this guy who comes back from the war. It's one of the Nick Adams stories. He comes back from the war and he makes up all sorts of stories about his bravado and his war experience, and they're all lies. And he can't face himself or deal with his his guilt over the things that really happened because he lied so much. Isn't it interesting that Hemingway wrote that story? Right. <laughs> So you and I both worked as newspaper reporters, and you write in your book that newspaper writing can crush creative expression, uh, and that's why, as you say, the prose of many fine journalists, if stretched to book length, induces real pain. And then you quote the novelist William Kennedy, who also worked as a newspaper reporter, who says that while journalism gave him entry into a world He had no right to enter, which I think is one of the reasons to be a journalist. It also pounded into him the voice of literary objectivity, which he calls, quote, a journalistic virus that paralyzes the imagination and cripples the language. So uh, I think there are benefits to having worked as a newspaper reporter. Part of it is being able to go places and do things, as Hemingway correctly points out. Uh, it also it teaches you to write cleanly and quickly, uh, but I think that that transition to being a book writer, it, it, it also that newspaper ethos, as you correctly point out, can cripple you. Just talk about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was writing for newspapers, I mean, I, I, I loved it, but I never intended to remain a newspaper writer. Uh, you know, it was so it was more formulaic then than it is today. You know, it was like the lead of the nut graph, and then you know, I always felt like if I wrote a good lead and a good nut graph, I, I, you know, the other six hundred words would just be there, and you were done. Um, well, we we used to call it B matter. <laughs> it was just vomiting up what you'd written a few days before. And um, remember once. Uh, talking to uh, my editor, foreign editor on the Chicago Tribune, who was one of my favorite editors. He was a really great editor. And an experienced foreign correspondent and a good guy to work with. And he called me up one day and said, you have just written a 50-word lead. And <laughs> the only thing I could think of to say to him was, have you never read Proust? Right. Well, but, Proust did not write for newspapers, I believe. No, I, I don't think. <laughs> but you know, yeah, newspaper writing for newspapers, exactly like Bill Kennedy said. You know, it teaches you how to get in places, talk to people you'd never get to meet otherwise, and it's a, it's a great experience. But the writing part is not a great experience. Uh, um, 
although a clever lead, I mean, we used to spend a lot of time on our leads because it's a hook and it's something that Graham Greene would always do at the front end of his novels is use a very clever, well-thought-out lead to hook you into the novel. Hemingway, too. Look at Hemingway's short stories. Every one of Hemingway's short stories is a great opening line. Hmm. He really understood that idea that you hook them in the first line. Um, in, the, in, in the fall, the war was still there, but we didn't go to it anymore. Yeah. Being line in, in another country. Um, and, you know, it's often said there's a lot that's been written about what Hemingway learned from writing for newspapers. I don't think he learned much from writing for newspapers. If you read his newspaper copy, he didn't even learn how to write for newspapers. No, it's pretty bad. That's the interesting. And, I mean, I don't know how he got away with it. No editor I ever worked with would have taken copy like that. Um, but what he learned from is that he was an avant-garde writer, part of the modernist movement. And it's modernism that, that made him so clean and concise. It's not this cable-ease, it's how they say that how he, you know, cabled stories to newspapers is how he got this style. It's, it's not true. He got this style from um, Ezra Pound and even Gertrude Stein he had an interesting relationship with Gertrude Stein. He, he, uh, he thought that her writing was really interesting, but hopelessly unreadable. And he kind of admired the way, you know, she didn't care that she wasn't commercial. But of course, she came from a wealthy family, so she could do that. Um, but, uh, you know... Hemingway, Hemingway wanted to be that kind of experimental modernist, but do it in a way that he would be popular and have readers. And, that, and, and that's really what shaped his writing style, not, not newspaper work. Well, we forget that he was quite close to Joyce, uh, yeah. and they would all go out drinking, and Joyce loved drinking with Hemingway because he was a big guy. Uh, so when they both got obnoxious in some French bar, uh, people would leave them alone. Although, as you point out in your book, uh, his bravado as a boxer, again, was a myth. He used to fight Ezra Pound, of all people, because Pound knew nothing about boxing. Uh, and he liked to knock people down, but he couldn't actually fight anybody who was a boxer. You and I, by the way, both boxed. Yeah, I, I, um, I boxed enough to know he wasn't. I wasn't either. I was not a, I was not a great boxer. It was the opposite of Hemingway. I really didn't want to hurt him. That's the whole point of boxing, Mark. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That that was the difference between you and me. Um. (laughs) No, if I if I planted a good punch, there'd be a part of me that might have pulled back. Ooh, I hope it didn't hurt him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you make the point in the book that I thought was also really true and interesting that Hemingway really didn't know. Spain or Cuba, but that he created these powerful fictions of these places that still we're still grappling with. In many ways, we still can't uh, overcome. Yeah. Uh, you know, he may have known Spain, but he didn't know the Basques. Right. That you were specific about that, yeah. He had no idea who the Basques were. And, and, you know, as someone who spent a lot of my life around Basques, you know, I read Hemingway and 
it's a little strange. That's not who Basques are. Never met a Basque in here. You got a blue wine skin. <laughs> um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was a fiction writer and he, he, he created fiction. Uh, but, you know, as you say, um, in From the Bell Tolls, a uh, pretty good portrait of what Spain was like in the Civil War. And, you know, one of the interesting things for me, I mean, I didn't go to Spain because of Hemingway. Uh, I went to Spain because it was an incredible experience to see the last 1930s fascist dictatorship still in power. Um, and uh, uh, I... It was, it was a fascinating place. It was very different from any place else in the world because it was in this time warp. Um, but it was, you know, the Paris that I went to was completely different than the Paris Hemingway went to. And the Cuba I went to, you know, his Cuba was pre-revolutionary. It was most, you know, everything was different except Spain. Spain I went to because I went to Spain when Franco was still in power. And the Spain I went to was really the same Spain that he left. I want to talk about Spain. Uh, so he had a rupture with John Dos, Dos Passos in Spain, uh, Jose Robles uh, Pazos. He was, uh, had, had taught at uh, John Hopkins. Uh, he translated Dos Passos. He was a colonel in the Republican Army during the war. He was arrested in December of 1936 by the principal communist hatchet man and homicidal maniac Andre Marti. He was the political commissar of the International Brigades, credited with the executions of 500 people uh, that he suspected of being spies. Hemingway knew about the executions, uh, and he knew about who Marti was in his novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. He said that he, as quote, his face looked as though it was modeled from the waste material of his victims, uh, that you find under the claws of a very old lion. Uh, and yet, during the war, Hemingway would de not, not denounce the crimes in, in the way that Orwell did uh, because, of course, it would have made him a pariah. And he was a feted and a celebrity uh, in Spain, would have shattered his privileged status. And he turned his back on Robles. He turned his back on Dos Passos. And I want to talk about that dishonesty, that cowardice, and that betrayal. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, he, um, you know, so there's all these reporters there, and he is getting better information, better sources than anyone because he's a celebrity. Most of his sources are from communists, and um, if uh, if he reported on the bad stuff they were doing, he'd lose his sources. Now, you and I both know. This is not a unique thing. This often, without naming names, you know, in, in, in every war, in every difficult situation, there are reporters who um, gloss over truths so that they won't offend the people who are feeding them information. It's, it's actually, in a way, it's, it's the most journalistic thing he ever did, uh, unfortunately. Um, and then he wrote a novel and told all, revealed all the truth because he didn't need his sources. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's completely dishonest. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, cause he was around a lot of good reporters like Herbert Matthew sort of accepted that he would do this. Um, but, you know, it's the way the Civil War was covered. The New York Times had Herbert Matthew for the Republic, and they had somebody else for the fascists. And, um, you know, Matthew worked his side, and some other guy worked his side, and they filed stories. And I think it must have been extremely confusing for New York Times readers to try to figure out what was going on in Spain, because you're getting two different versions all the time. They won the battle, no, they lost the battle. I mean, it was just completely opposite. Well, that's how the New York Times works. So, you know, as a foreign correspondent, I'm writing one thing in El Salvador, and the Washington Bureau's writing another uh, based on administration sources. And it's that old IF Stone line that people who have sources to the powerful, uh, he said, they know more than I do. Unfortunately, most of it's false. And Hemingway... Uh, spewed propaganda. I mean, he talked about how they were winning the war on the eve of the Republican defeat. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's the whole thing about journalism. I mean, but one thing I always struggled with was the reporters who took everything the U.S. government told them. And sometimes the U.S. government had their own propaganda reasons. Sometimes they were just completely misinformed. Um, but these guys would just uh, take what they were being fed. There's laziness, you know? You don't have to go out and find a well, story. Right. Well, that's the difference because most reporters in a war zone, the war zones I've been in, they don't want to go out. We, they want to get the handouts, and they're used against the rest of us that do go out. Uh, and Hemingway wrote a lot of his stories at the bar. He, he didn't go out. No, he did go out. He, he did both. He did both. I mean, all the material for... Uh, for whom the bell tolls was from a story he reported on. You know, this thing's actually happened about blowing up the bridge and stuff. And it was a story that the Communist Party put him up to. You know, they said, you know, go to this place and you'll get a good story. But did, did he go or did he interview the people who did it? No, he actually went. He went. He went out a lot. He'd go out with uh, Herbert Matthews and they, they, they'd go to places. I mean, he, uh, you'll appreciate this from having been in, in Nicaragua, that, uh, you know, he had a great advantage that he had a car and plenty of gasoline. Right. <laughs> right. When I was in, in Nicaragua, I mean, it was pathetic. I just couldn't get anywhere unless I befriended somebody uh, who, uh, you know, had a car and a tank full of gas. Right. And uh, I was noticing in your new book, you talked about how you avoided working with people who were, who were green and didn't know what they were doing. Um, in, in principle, I agree, but the truth is, you know, Nicaragua, I would work with anybody who had the gasoline. Right. So I want to talk about World War II. He, uh, Hemingway blurred the line between correspondent and combatant. Uh, and uh, you and I both know that that's exceedingly dangerous for those of us who uh, attempt to report in a war zone, uh, he, because Hemingway, of course, carried a, a weapon. Uh, and perhaps used it, uh, and uh, it's already dangerous enough. Right. Don't shoot at me. I'm not a combatant. Oh, but this guy over here is <laughs> really bad. Uh, but 
it's not clear how much of that he actually did. Well, that's the other thing we can't tell, which I think you acknowledge in your book, <laughs> since he's an unreliable source. Yeah, I don't think he had nearly the role in the liberation of Paris that he claimed he did. I know he didn't liberate the Ritz. Uh, there were no Germans in the Ritz by the time he got there. <laughs> which, if you think about it, you know, the Allies have, have come down from Normandy, they've encircled Paris, the troops have come in, and the Germans are sitting around in the Ritz Hotel. Really? <laughs> um, so he would just make these things up. But, you know, one of the interesting things is that the, the other correspondents got fed up with him, you know, doing this stuff and having weapons and acting like a combatant. And they complained about it. And he, he was, uh, uh, they had a hearing, they examined him. They were considering throwing him out of the, uh, out of the front uh, or violating the rules of correspondence. Um, and he denied everything. At all, I never did this stuff. <laughs> you, you never know when Hemingway is telling the truth. I want to talk about he had this. This is from Hemingway. I mean, he and he's dead on he, in the book. Uh, this is from your book. He said writers should work alone. They should see each other only after their work is done, and not too often then. Otherwise, they become like writers in New York all angleworms in a bottle trying to derive knowledge and nourishment from their own contact and from the bottle. I thought that was kind of brilliant. It, it is. And as a writer who lives in New York, I have to tell you that my saving grace is that I live in Manhattan, whereas all the other writers live in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about his uh, fiction, um, and I, I think before we went on the air, you said uh, the only time he's honest is in his fiction. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I mean, he had this code about his fiction, about it being true and honest, that he didn't have about his, his, his journalism. So, you know, you see in For Whom the Bell Tolls, he talks about the atrocities on both sides uh, he has this book that was published posthumously in which they're game hunting, big game hunting in Africa. And this, there's this character named Hemingway and he's talking about how really awful it is these white guys going to Africa and killing all their natural resources and, uh, and really questioning the whole role of hunters. And, uh, you know, he, he, he would bring up lots of issues and lots of points of view and he, he, he really... In his fiction, he wasn't really trying to um, indoctrinate you. He was trying to just show how it is. Would it be fair to say that that's because he wasn't writing about himself? That that when he wrote about himself, in a way, he was, uh, you know, building this kind of mythic uh, uh, idea of who he was. But when he when he stepped out of himself, he could be honest. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's not clear when he was writing about himself because, you know, in his fiction, he has all these characters, Nick Adams, for example, uh, all these characters that uh, clearly seem to be Hemingway or some aspect of Hemingway. Um, and then, you know, he writes about them in, in, in ways that are often uh, uh, critical, big and small ways. Uh, Jake Barnes, who, you know, you really feel it, is Hemingway, uh, cheats as a fly fisherman and uses bait, uh, something probably Hemingway wouldn't have done. Um, 
He was just very complicated. So, Mark, I want to ask you about uh, A Farewell to Arms, uh, which I, I find Hemingway's writing on war brilliant. Uh, and I found his relationship with Catherine insipid. Um, the, the, the novel was completely schizophrenic for me. Uh, the, the one, the relationship itself being a kind of adolescent fantasy. And yet the writing on war, even though, as you point out in the book, he wasn't there that long, is amazingly insightful. Yeah. And, you know, I, I read that book. It remains my favorite Hemingway novel. I, I first read it when I was, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 years old. And um, Vietnam was on the horizon, and I was thinking a lot about war. And to me, this was, and, and, and still is, the brilliant anti-war book. It's a better anti-war book than All Quiet on the Western Front, I think. Um, because it just... Um, it just captures the, the, the pain and dreariness and uh, uh, boredom and terror. and uh, it's, just, it's just all there. But I, I agree with you, the relationship with Catherine. Is, I mean, Catherine as a character is, um, as you say, insipid. Um, and the relationship is... Um, what its function in the book is, is creating a tragedy, you know, which it does. Um, and he wrote something like 45 ending sentences in the book before he decided on which one to use. Um, but they're all about, oh, Catherine's dead and that's the way life is, uh, or death. And uh, it's interesting, you can, you can read them, all these variations on it. But, uh, um, it's, you know, Hemingway almost always had a love interest in his books. And that's because he was a commercial writer. And he knew you had to do that. He didn't write A Farewell to Arms to tell a love story. He wrote it to tell about war and how bad war was. But to get you to read it, he threw in a love story. It's not a great love story because um, she's just ridiculous. The love story in uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls isn't, isn't a great love story either. That that book also is kind of brilliant about war, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he was, he was a brilliant anti-war writer in his short story, lots of short stories. Uh, this is what threw me originally to him. Well, what threw me originally was I was a little kid and he was out having fun. But, you know, as I got to, in, into my teens, what drew me to him was his anti-war, because I was very anti-war. I ended up being a conscientious objector. And, um, you know, he was, he was the writer who was expressing all the stuff I was feeling about war. I want to talk about that dichotomy, because on the one hand, you, I agree with you. Uh, on the other hand, he kind of reveled in the machismo of war, especially the older he got. He's traveling around France and Germany with this elite unit and is despondent when he goes back to Cuba. Um, speak about that, because, because on the one hand, he is writing in that, the preface to that uh, collection of uh, war uh, stories, Men at War, is also 
searingly anti-war. Yeah. I mean, he was anti-war, and he created this fictitious character called Ernest Hemingway, who loved war. Um, but the real Ernest Hemingway, who, by the way, uh, never fought in a war, um, uh, hated war. And why he had this other persona, I don't know, which, as you say, got stronger and stronger after he came back from World War II, he really started... Well, when he came back from World War One, also he started playing for hero, and it was all nonsense. Um, and, and at the same time, thinking that war was inexcusable. So what was he doing? <laughs> um, there's some some confusion there. Well, he was dining out on the myth of war. I've seen war reporters do that. Yes. Yeah, and you know, if you're if you're if you're a storyteller, and Hemingway more than anything else was a storyteller. You know, war is great stuff, um, and he said that at various points that you know you, you never get the kind of stories uh, you get in war from anything else. Well, it it compresses human experience into the span of minutes. I mean, even in combat, colors are brighter. It's kind of zen-like experience. You know who also did this was Norman Mailer. Uh, so the, the, the uh, Naked and the Dead uh, is a great uh, war novel, and yet I did an event with Mailer, and he was dismissive of everyone else in the room except for myself and, and him because nobody else had been to war. And it just rung me at the at the time as completely false because people who've spent much time in combat don't speak like that. Uh, and I didn't know until I read his obituary that he had been a cook. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he'd been a he he like Hemingway. He vacuumed it up, uh, and he knew what he was. I th- I do think that The Naked of the Dead is a great novel. He wasn't a combat son. No, he was a cook for the Marine Corps. Oh. That's according to the obituary. Now, in the Marines, anyone can pick up a rifle, so maybe, but but that's how that was his duty. Right. Uh, and I also found that again, that kind of, and I think it mirrored Hemingway as he got older, uh, becoming more and more obnoxious in terms of that hyper masculine persona. Well, Mailer also pretended to be a boxer. Well, Mailer, uh, Mailer, and Hemingway. Uh, both did the same thing. They became the leading spokesman for their generation. And they did that through the war. You know, Hemingway, for that generation, the the generation born at the beginning of the century that experienced World War I, uh, Hemingway was the writer who uh, captured their experiences and their feelings. And And initially... In, in books like, um, uh, you know, his, his first couple of books, he, he the Sun Also Rises, especially, um, he's expressing how people of his generation feel. And The Naked and the Dead was really the voice of the World War II generation. Yeah. I mean, to what extent, though, did those later novels like Catch-22 do something that The Naked and the Dead didn't do? Yeah, I mean, sure they do, but uh, what 
What Naked and the Dead did is it showed war as this tedious, awful thing that you didn't want to be there, you know? And uh, this is also the, the, the experience, you know, it's not, it's not a glorious event and it's not exciting every once in a while. You know, it's, it's like a lot of boredom and then five minutes of, uh, of incredible um, excitement or fear, whatever you want to call it, and then back to another five days of boredom. Right. And that, that's what he captured. Well, that's why I was able to read all of Proust and the war in Bosnia. People forget all the dead time. Three days, I can remember waiting for a pontoon to be put back over a river uh, to get back to Sarajevo or wherever I was going. Uh, I just want to close by asking if, if there's a favorite short story or is there something that Hemingway wrote that uh, you, you hold up? Well, my favorite novel is A Farewell to Arms. Um, with short stories, I, I think I like his short stories better than his novels, but I, I don't know where to begin. Uh, in Another Country, and Big Two-Hearted River, and uh, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber, which some people attack as misogynist. You know, there again, so he, he, he wrote a story with an awful woman. It wasn't Sweet Catherine, it was this awful woman. Yeah. Now he's a misogynist, but, you know, he was a writer who wrote about all kinds of women. Hills Like White Elephants. Yes, yeah. Um, Where the man doesn't come off too well. Right, right. I mean, I mean his stories are... are are so interesting and so I, I love short stories anyway as a writer I've written uh, three collections of short stories it's my favorite form of writing it's my favorite form of reading um, because it's pure storytelling yeah and you know Hemingway took these stories and he made them perfect in a way you could never make a novel perfect well in that sense he was like Flannery O'Connor I mean there is a kind of perfection to his short stories that he just doesn't achieve in the novels. Right. All right. That was Mark Karlansky on his new book, The Importance of Not Being Earnest, My Life with the Uninvited Hemingway. Let me just tell you one more story. Sure. Because it, it sort, of, sort of shows my situation. So I live on West 86th Street in Manhattan. This weekend I was out walking my dog down the block, and a doorman that I know shouts out from this building, Hey, you look like Hemingway. <laughs> Apropos of nothing. <laughs> no one's ever shouted that at me, Mark. <laughs> well, that, that happened to you. Where was it? Somewhere in Spain, or didn't they, someone shout out Papa? Maybe it was when you were up in Basque country, right? In Cuba. Cuba, because right. That's right. Hemingway used to wander around Havana, and people used to shout at him, Hey, Papa, and you'd wave at them. Probably didn't even know who they were because he had very bad eyesight. So one day I was out walking around Havana and it happened to be Father's Day. One of those uh, signs that Cuba has a strong American influence is that they celebrate Father's Day the same day we do. And I'm walking around sort of missing my daughter and everybody's shouting out, Hola, Papa. And I think, oh, that's nice. They figured out that I'm a father. And eventually I realized, no, there's nothing to do with Father's Day here playing that I'm Hemingway. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you very much. It was good to talk to you. Yeah.
Yeah, nice talking to you. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. 